0: podcasts where I read old books to help you get to sleep. Happy November, everybody. We're officially heading into the holiday season, and we've got a great bedtime story for you tonight. A little mystery written by Agatha Christie. But before we get to tonight's story, I just want to say that this episode is proudly sponsored by Shopify. As someone who's self-employed and has to hustle pretty hard in order to make life easier, I love using tools like Shopify that help me streamline my day-to-day work so I can rest easy at night. Shopify is an all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. So that idea you might have been knocking around in your head for years, that business you always wanted to start, give it a whirl and try out a free 14-day trial of Shopify to help you get it off the ground. Breathing life into a good idea you've had opens endless possibilities. It has for me. I mean, this podcast started as a weird, funny thing. I started as a joke while working in restaurants, and now it's something that's grown and allows me the freedom to do the things that I love. Well Shopify helps millions of entrepreneurs do the same, and... It just makes it all seem possible. So, it's never been easier to start and grow a business thanks to Shopify. Go ahead, try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com otis. Go to shopify.com otis to start selling online today. Shopify.com otis. I'll put a link for this in the description of the show. And now, I'd like to thank our brand new Patrons on Patreon.com. Lindsay Van Meter, Preet Bogle, Perry Klee, Nadine Abdallah, Reagan Lennington, and Nicholas Blazer. Thank you all so, so much for being a part of making this show. I truly, truly appreciate it. And for anyone who doesn't know, all these names that I just read are brand new supporters of Sleepy on Patreon.com, which is a wonderful site where you can go and directly support creators of the work that you like. So, if the Sleepy Podcast has helped you get a better night's rest, maybe it's helped you wake up a little more chipper the next day, then consider going to Patreon.com sleepyradio and donating even a dollar a month. That goes a really long way. At $5, you get cool perks like access to an exclusive poetry feed with 50 extra episodes that you have not heard before, um, with no ones coming out every few weeks. But no matter how much you donate, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So again, if you would like to be a part of making this show, Go to patreoncom sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lapkowski, and the cover up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Tonight, I have a wonderful story from a wonderful writer. Agatha Christie. We've read her a few times on the show, and yes, her stories are very entertaining, but I've also heard from you all that you are perfectly content to go to sleep to them as well. Well, this story is a really great one. Maybe you've read it before when you were a kid. It is... Um, The Mystery of Hunter's Lodge. Great little murder mystery. Um, And we join our fearless detective, Poirot. Actually, he kind of takes a backseat a little bit in most of this story as he falls ill. Um, But it's it's a really, really great story. And I think you're going to like falling asleep to it. So without further ado, The Mystery of Hunter's Lodge by Agatha Christie. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. After all, murmured Perot, it is possible that I shall not die this time. Coming from a convalescent influenza patient, I hailed the remark as showing a beneficial optimism. I myself had been the first sufferer from the disease. Perot, in his turn, had gone down he was now sitting up in bed, propped up with pillows. Yes, yes, my little friend continued. Once more shall I be myself again, the great Hercule Poirot, the terror of evil doers? Figure to yourself, mon ami, that I have a little paragraph to myself in society gossip. But yes, here it is. Go it, criminals. All out. Hercule Poirot, and believe me, girls, he's some Hercules. Our own pet society detective can't get a grip on you. Cause why? Cause he's got la grippe himself. I laugh. Good for you, Poirot. You are becoming quite a public character. Unfortunately, you haven't missed anything of particular interest during this time. That is true. The few cases I have had a decline did not fill me with any regret. Our landlady stuck her head in at the door. There's a gentleman downstairs. Says he must see Monsieur Poirot, or you, Captain. Seeing as how he was in a great to-do, and with all that, quite the gentleman, I brought up his card. She handed me the bit of pasteboard. Honor Roger Hevering, I read. Perrault motioned with his head toward the bookcase, and I obediently pulled forth the who's who. Perrault took it from me and scanned the pages rapidly second son of 5th Baron Windsor, married 1913, Zoe, fourth daughter of William Crabb. Hmm, I said. I rather fancy that's the girl who used to act at the frivolity. Only, she called herself Zoe Carisbrook. I remember she married some young man about town just before the war. Would it interest you, Hastings, to go down and hear what our visitor's particular trouble is? Make him all my excuses. Roger Havering was a man of about 40, well set up and of smart appearance. His face, however, was haggard and he was evidently laboring under great agitation. Captain Hastings... You are Monsieur Perrault's partner, I understand. It is imperative that he should come with me to Derbyshire today. I'm afraid that's impossible, I reply. Perrault is ill and bed. Influenza. His face fell. Dear me, that is a grave blow to me. The matter on which you want to consult him, it's serious. My God, yes. My uncle, the best friend I have in the world, was foully murdered last night. Here in London? No, in Derbyshire. I was in town and received a telegram from my wife this morning. Immediately upon its receipt, I determined to come round and beg Monsieur Perrault to undertake the case. If you'll excuse me a minute, I said, struck by a sudden idea. I rushed upstairs, and in a few brief words acquainted Perrault with the situation. He took any further words out of my mouth. I see, I see. You want to go yourself, is it not so? Well, why not? You should know my methods by now. All I ask is that you should report to me fully every day and follow implicitly any instructions I may wire you. To this I willingly agreed. And an hour later I was sitting opposite Mr. Havering in a first-class carriage on the Midland Railway speeding rapidly away from London. To begin with, Captain Hastings You must understand that Hunter's Lodge, where we are going and where the tragedy took place, is only a small shooting box in the heart of the Derbyshire Moors. Our real home is near Newmarket, and we usually rent a flat in town for the season. Hunter's Lodge is looked after by a housekeeper who is quite capable of doing all we need when we run down for an occasional weekend. Of course, during the shooting season, we take down some of our own servants from Newmarket. My uncle, Mr. Harrington Pace, as you may know, my mother was a Miss Pace of New York, has for the last three years made his home with us. He never got on well with my father or my elder brother, and I suspect that my being somewhat of a prodigal son myself rather increased than diminished his affection toward me. Of course, I am a poor man, and my uncle was a rich one. In other words, he paid the piper. But though exacting in many ways, it was not really hard to get on with, and we all three lived very harmoniously together. Two days ago, my uncle, rather wearied with some recent gaieties of ours in town, suggested that we should run down to Derbyshire for a day or two. My wife telegraphed to Mrs. Middleton, the housekeeper, and we went down that same afternoon. Yesterday evening, I was forced to return to town, but my wife and my uncle remained on. This morning, I received this telegram. He handed it over to me, and I read Come at once. Uncle Harrington murdered last night. Bring good detective if you can, but do come. Zoe. But as yet, you know no details. No. I suppose it will be in the evening papers. Without doubt, the police are in charge. It was about three o'clock when we arrived at the little station of Elmer's Dale. From there, a five-mile drive brought us to a small gray stone building in the midst of the rugged moors. A lonely place, I observed. Havering nodded. I shall try and get rid of it. I could never live here again. We unlatched the gate and were walking up the narrow path through the oak door when a familiar figure emerged and came to meet us. Ja, I ejaculated. The Scotland Yard inspector grinned at me in a friendly fashion before addressing my companion. Mr. Havering, I think. I've been sent down from London to take charge of this case, and I'd like a word with you, if I may, sir. My wife. I've seen your good lady, sir, and the housekeeper. I won't keep you a moment, but I'm anxious to get back to the village now that I've seen all there is to see here. I know nothing as yet as to what Exactly, said Jop, soothingly, but there are just one or two little points I'd like your opinion about all the same. Captain Hastings here, he knows me, and he'll go on up to the house and tell them you're coming. I went on to the house, I rang the bell, as Jop closed the door behind him. After some moments, it was opened to me by a middle-aged woman in black. Mr. Havering will be here in a moment, I explain. He has been detained by the inspector. I have come down with him from London to look into the case. Perhaps you can tell me briefly what occurred last night. Come inside, sir. She closed the door behind me and we stood in the dimly lighted hall. It was after dinner last night, sir, that the man came. He asked to see Mr. Pace, sir, and seeing that he spoke the same way, I thought it was an American gentleman friend of Mr. Pace's, and I showed him into the gun room, and then went to tell Mr. Pace. He wouldn't give me no name, which of course was a bit odd, now I come to think of it. I told Mr. Pace, and he seemed puzzled. Like, but he said to the mistress, Excuse me, Zoe. Well, I just see what this fellow wants. He went off to the gun room, and I went back into the kitchen. But after a while, I heard loud noises, as if they were quarreling, and I came out into the hall. At the same time, the mistress she comes in too. And just then there was a shot, and then a dreadful silence. We both ran to the gunroom door, but it was locked, and we had to go round to the window. It was open, and there inside was Mr. Pace, all shot and bleeding. What became of the man? He must have got away through the window, sir, before we got to it. And then? Mrs. Havering sent me to fetch the police. Five miles to walk, it was. They came back with me, and the constable, he stayed all night. And this morning, the police gentleman from London arrived. What was this man like who called to see Mr. Pace? The housekeeper reflected. He had a black beard, sir, and was about middle-aged and had on a light overcoat. Beyond the fact that he spoke like an American, I didn't notice much about him. I see. Now I wonder if I can see Mrs. Havering. She's upstairs, sir. Shall I tell her? If you please. Tell her that Mr. Havering is outside with Inspector Job, and the gentleman he has brought back with him from London is anxious to speak to her as soon as possible. Very good, sir. I was in a fever of impatience to get at all the facts, Joff had two or three hours' start of me, and his anxiety to be gone made me keen to be close at his heels. Mrs. Havering did not keep me waiting long. In a few minutes, I heard a light step descending the stairs, and looked up to see a very handsome young woman coming toward me. She wore a flame-colored jumper that set off the slender boyishness of her figure. On her dark head was a little hat of flame-colored leather. Even the present tragedy could not dim the vitality of her personality. I introduced myself, and she nodded in quick comprehension. Of course, I have often heard of you and your colleague, Monsieur Perrault. You have done some wonderful things together, haven't you? It was very clever of my husband to get you so promptly. Now, will you ask me questions? That is the easiest way, isn't it, of getting to know all you want about this dreadful affair. Thank you, Mrs. Avery. Now, what time was it that this man arrived? It must have been just before 9 o'clock. We had finished dinner and were sitting over our coffee and cigarettes. Your husband had already left for London. Yes, he went up by the 6.15. Did he go by car to the station or did he walk? Our own car isn't down here. One came out from the garage in Elmersdale to fetch him in time for the train. Was Mr. Pace quite his usual self? Absolutely. Most normal in every way. Now, can you describe this visitor at all? I'm afraid not. I didn't see him. Mrs. Middleton showed him straight into the gun room and then came to tell my uncle. What did your uncle say? He seemed rather annoyed, but went off at once. It was about five minutes later that I heard the sound of raised voices. I ran out into the hall and almost collided with Mrs. Middleton. Then we heard the shot. The gunroom door was locked on the inside, and we had to go around the house to the window. Of course, that took some time, and the murderer had been able to get well away. My poor uncle. Her voice faltered. had been shot through the head. I saw her once that he was dead, and I sent Mrs. Middleton for the police straight away. I was careful to touch nothing in the room, but to leave it exactly as I found it. I nodded approval. Now, as to the weapon... Well, I can make a guess at it, Captain Hastings. A pair of revolvers of my husband's were mounted upon the wall. One of them is missing. I pointed this out to the police and they took the other one away with them. When they have extracted the bullet I suppose they will know for certain. May I go into the gun room? Certainly. The police have finished with it, but the body has been removed. She accompanied me to the scene of the crime. At that moment Havering entered the hall and with a quick apology, his wife ran to him. I was left to undertake my investigations alone. I may as well confess at once that they were rather disappointing. In detective novels, clues abound, but here I could find nothing that struck me as out of the ordinary except a large bloodstain on the carpet where I judged the dead man had fallen. I examined everything with painstaking care and took a couple of pictures of the room with my little camera, which I had brought with me. I also examined the ground outside of the window, but it appeared to have been so heavily trampled that I judged it was useless to waste time over it. Now that I had seen all that Hunter's Lodge had to show me, I must go back to Elmersdale and get into touch with Jop. Accordingly, I took leave of the Haverings and was driven off in the car that had brought us up from the station. Jop I found at the Matlock Arms, then he took me forthwith to see the body. Harrington Pace was a small, spare, clean-shaven man typically American in appearance. He had been shot through the back of the head, and the revolver had been discharged at close quarters. Turned away for a moment, remarked Ja, and the other fellow snatched up a revolver and shot him. The one Mrs. Havering handed over to us was fully loaded, and I suppose the other one was also. Curious what darn fool things people do. Fancy keeping two loaded revolvers hanging up on your wall. What do you think of the case? I asked as we left the gruesome chamber behind us. Well, I got my eye on Havering to begin with. Oh yes, noting my exclamation with astonishment. Avering has one or two shady incidents in his past. When he was a boy at Oxford, there was some funny business about the signature on one of his father's checks. All hushed up, of course. Then he's pretty heavily in debt now, and are the kind of debts he wouldn't like to go to his uncle about, whereas you may be sure the uncle's will would be in his favor. Yes, I got my eye on him, and that's why I wanted to speak to him before he saw his wife. But their statements dovetail all right, and I've been to the station, and there's no doubt whatever that he left by six fifteen. That gets up to London about ten thirty. He went straight to his club, he says, and if that's confirmed all right, why? He couldn't have been shooting his uncle here at nine o'clock in a black beard. Ah, yes. I was going to ask you what you thought about that beard. Job winked. I think it grew pretty fast. Grew in the five miles from Elmersdale to Hunter's Lodge. Americans that I have met are mostly clean-shaven. I questioned the housekeeper first, and then her mistress, and their stories agree all right. But I'm sorry Mrs. Havering didn't get a look at the fellow. She's a smart woman, and she might have noticed something that would set us on the track. I sat down and wrote a minute and lengthy account of Perot. I was able to add various further items of information before I posted the letter. The bullet had been extracted and was proved to have been fired from a revolver identical to the size to the one held by the police. Furthermore, Mr. Havering's movements on the night in question had been checked and verified and it was proved beyond a doubt that he had actually arrived in London by the train in question. And thirdly, a sensational development had occurred. A city gentleman, living at Ealing on Crossing Haven Green to get to the district railway station that morning, had observed a brown paper parcel stuck between the railings. Opening it he found that it contained a revolver. He handed the parcel over to the local police station, and before night, it was proved to be the one we were in search of, the fellow to that given us by Mrs. Havery. One bullet had been fired from it. All this I added to my report. A wire from Perot. Arrived while I was at breakfast the following morning. Of course, black-bearded man was not Havering. Only you or Jap would have such an idea. Wire me description of housekeeper, and what clothes she wore this morning. Same of Mrs. Havering. Do not waste time taking photographs of interiors; they are underexposed and not in the least artistic. It seemed to me that Poro's style was unnecessarily facetious. I also fancied that he was a shade jealous of my position on the spot, with full facilities for handling the case. His request for a description of the clothes worn by the two women appeared to me to be simply ridiculous, but I compiled as well as I, a mere man, was able to. At eleven, a reply wire came from Perrault. Advise Jap arrest housekeeper before it is too late. Dumbfounded, I took the wire to Jap. He swore softly under his breath. He's the goods, Monsieur Perrault. If he says so, there's something in it. And I hardly noticed the woman. I don't know that I can go so far as arresting her, but I'll have her watched. We'll go up right away and take another look at her. But it was too late. Mrs. Middleton, that quiet, middle-aged woman who had appeared so normal and respectable, had vanished into thin air. Her box had been left behind. It contained only ordinary wearing apparel. There was no clue in it to her identity or as to her whereabouts. From Mrs. Havering, we elicited all the facts we could. I engaged her about three weeks ago when Mrs. Emery, our former housekeeper, left. She came to me from Mrs. Selborne's agency in Mount Street, a very well-known place. I get all my servants from there. They sent several women to see me, but this Mrs. Middleton seemed much the nicest and had splendid references. I engaged her on the spot and notified the agency of the fact. I can't believe that there was anything wrong with her, She was such a nice, quiet woman. The thing was certainly a mystery. While it was clear that the woman herself could not have committed the crime, since at the moment the shot was fired, Mrs. Havering was with her in the hall. Nevertheless, she must have some connection with the murder. Or why would she suddenly take to her heels and bowl? I wired the latest development to Poirot and suggested returning to London and making inquiries at Salborne's agency. Poirot's reply was prompt. Useless to inquire at agency. They will never have heard of her. Find out what vehicle took her up to the hunting lodge when she first arrived there. Though mystified, I was obedient. The means of transport in Elmersdale were limited. The local garage had two cars, and there were two station flies. None of these had been requisitioned on the date in question. I may also mention that inquiries at the agency in London bore out Perot's prognostication. No such woman as Mrs. Middleton had ever been on their books. They had received the honorary Mrs. Havering's application for a housekeeper and had sent her various applicants for the post. When she sent them the engagement fee, she omitted to mention which woman she had selected. Somewhat crestfallen, I returned to London I found Poirot established in an armchair by the fire. He greeted me with affection. Mon ami, Hastings, but how glad I am to see you. Veritably, I have for you great affection. And you have enjoyed yourself. You have run to and fro with the good job. You have interrogated and investigated to your heart's content. Oh, I cried, the thing's a dark mystery that will never be solved. It is true that we are not likely to cover ourselves with glory over it. No, indeed, it's a hard nut to crack. Oh, as far as that goes, me, I am very good at cracking the nuts, a veritable squirrel. It is not that which embarrasses me. I know well enough who killed Mr. Harrington Pace. You know. How did you find out? Your illuminating answers to my wire supplied me with the truth. See here. Hastings, let us examine the facts methodically and in order. Mr. Harrington Pace is a man with a considerable fortune, which at his death, doubtless pass to his nephew, point number one. His nephew is known to be desperately hard-up, point number two. His nephew is also known to be, shall we say, a man of loose moral fiber, point number three. But Roger Havering is proved to have journeyed straight up to London, Precisamente. And therefore, as Mr. Havering left Elmer's Dale at 6.15, and since Mr. Pace cannot have been killed before he left, or the doctor would have spotted the time of the crime as being given wrongly when he examined the body, we conclude, quite rightly, that Mr. Havering did not shoot his uncle. But there is a Mrs. Havering Hastings. Impossible. The housekeeper was with her when the shot was fired. Ah, yes, the housekeeper. But she has disappeared. She will be found. I think not. There is something peculiarly elusive about that housekeeper, don't you think so? It struck me at once. She played her part, I suppose and then got out in the nick of time. And what was her part? Well, I presume to admit her confederate, the black-bearded man. Oh no, that was not her part. Her part was what you just mentioned, to provide an alibi for Mrs. Havering at the moment the shot was fired. And no one will ever find her, mon ami because she does not exist. There is no such person as your so great Shakespeare says. It was Dickens, I murmured, smiling. But what do you mean, Poirot? I mean that Zoe Havering was an actress before her marriage, that you and Jap only saw the housekeeper in a dark hall, a dim middle-aged figure in black with a faint subdued voice. And finally, that neither you nor Jap, nor the local police whom the housekeeper fetched, ever saw Mrs. Middleton and her mistress at one and the same time. It was a child's play for that clever and daring woman. On the pretext of summoning her mistress, she runs upstairs, slips on a bright jumper and a hat with black curls attached which she jams down over the gray transformation. A few deft touches, and the makeup is removed. A slight dusting of rouge, and the brilliant Zoe Havering comes down with her clear ringing voice. But the revolver that was found at Ealing, Mrs. Havering could not have placed it there. No, that was Roger Havering's job but it was a mistake on their part. They put me on the right track. A man who has committed a murder with a revolver which he found on the spot would fling it away at once. He would not carry it up to London with him. No, the motive was clear. Criminals wished to focus the interest of the police on a spot far removed from Derbyshire. They were anxious to get the police away as soon as possible from the vicinity of Hunter's Lodge. Of course, the revolver found at Ealing was not the one with which Mr. Pace was shot. Roger Havering discharged one shot from it, brought it up to London, went straight to his club to establish his alibi, and then went quickly out to Ealing by the District Railway matter of about 20 minutes only. Place the parcel where it was found and so back to town. That charming creature, his wife, quietly shoots Mr. Pace after dinner. You remember he was shot from behind. Another significant point, that. She reloads the revolver and puts it back in his place. And then starts off with her desperate little comedy. It's incredible, I murmured, fascinated. And yet, and yet it is true. Bien, sir, my friend, it is true. But to bring that precious pair to justice, that is another matter. Well, John must do what he can. I have written him fully, but I very much fear, Hastings, that we shall be obliged to leave them to fate or Le Bon Dieu, whichever you prefer. The wicked flourish like a green bay tree, I reminded him. But at a price, Hastings, always at a price, croyez moi. Perrault's forebodings were confirmed. Job, though convinced of the truth of his theory, was unable to get together the necessary evidence to ensure a conviction. Mr. Pace's huge fortune passed into the hands of his murderers. Nevertheless, Nemesis did overtake them, and when I read in the morning paper that the honorary Roger and Mrs. Havering were among those killed in the crashing of the airmail to Paris, I knew that justice was satisfied.